0: Before we get going today, I just want to let you guys know that my really good friend Ollie Richards has released a whole ton of new courses based on learning a second language. Now, these are the exact types of courses that me and my family used to go from really crummy Spanish to fluent in less than two years. I use a lot of his methods with teaching my own daughter. My mother uses these ones, my wife uses them, I use them. We're big, big fans of Ollie, and you know what? He has actually become a really, really close friend of mine over the last couple of years of working together. So I hope that if you guys are going to be an expat, if you're going to live overseas, if you're going to be a digital nomad, that you guys actually put in the time and the effort and the energy to learn some of the local languages of the countries that you're going to. I think that you'll have a richer experience if you do this. I think it shows respect for the culture. And I think you'll just have a lot more fun. So... What I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language, forward slash language, that's it, expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language, and check out the courses that he does. We did the Spanish program, but he has French and German, he has Italian, and now he's coming out with Turkish, Chinese, Portuguese, Russian, whole bunch of languages coming out. So it is really, really exciting times. I hope you guys get a chance to take a look at this. Just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language. Okay, let's jump into today's interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikhail Thorpe and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is a freelance digital marketer who made the transition to digital nomad life on January 1st, 2020. Well, we all know what happened next. So despite COVID pandemic and resulting lockdowns, he has lived the greater part of two years out of a suitcase. Off the beaten path and traversing the Middle East, Balkans, the Caucasus, visiting 80 plus cities and 16 countries. Well, 17 if you count the unrecognized breakaway state of Transnistria. Please welcome to the show, Alex Bowles. Alex, how are you?
1: Thanks, Mikhail. It's a pleasure to be here with you. How are you?
0: Very good. I think I butchered your last name, even though I practiced it like 12 times. So I apologize from that. Bales, Alex Bales, please welcome to the show. Alex is a good friend of mine, but every time I ask him about his name, I seem to want to mispronounce (laughs) it. So I apologize to you right off the bat. Now, Alex, before we get going, why don't we take a minute and kind of hear about your backstory? Why don't you walk us through things? Why did you become a digital nomad and why did you choose the Balkans and... Eastern Europe and these types of places? Because I would guess this is probably not the first place that a lot of people would think of if they want to become a digital nomad. Sure.
1: So I took very standard career trajectory, I guess. I went to a four-year university, public university. I studied economics. That was what I had been told to do my whole life and you know that I would get a great job and be perfectly happy, perfectly secure. And actually, I was. I lived in Washington, D.C. for five years. I worked in the nonprofit world, and I had a great life there, a very exciting place compared to where I'm from, a suburban town in Oregon. But I never quite felt like I had found myself. I never quite felt content. And I wouldn't consider myself sheltered whatsoever, but I hadn't done nearly as much as I wanted to do. I hadn't seen enough of the world and I hadn't experienced as much of life as I wanted to. So uh, one of the previous nonprofits that I had interned in, uh, I had only been to three countries, I think at that point, I did a study abroad in London. I had been to Canada once, I think, you know, Americans don't really consider Canada a different country or that much of a different country from America. But she was from Lebanon, and I told her that I wanted to visit Israel very ignorantly, not really understanding the nuances of telling somebody from Lebanon that. And uh, interestingly, there actually was an Israeli in our intern class, but she invited me. She said, no, come to Lebanon. And I had kind of heard about the Paris of the Middle East. I knew that it probably wasn't what the media portrayed but at the same time i had really no compass to be able to tell for certain so because she was inviting me there i'm not sure she really expected me to show up but i did Uh, it seems like that was in 2015 and it kind of spurred an interest in wanting to travel elsewhere in the region so i went to some of the more um, expected countries in the region but then by 2019 I decided I found a tour company and I decided that I wanted to go on a 10 day tour of Iran. So I only have a US passport. And I figured that it would be kind of, you know, shot in the dark what's the expression to get the visa. But the visa process was much simpler than I expected. The tour company did most of it for me. And then I picked it up at the embassy of Pakistan in Washington, D.C. So pretty simple. But I ended up in Iran for 10 days. I knew that I was going to learn a lot and it was going to be surprising, but I didn't quite realize how much I would learn on that trip and how much my eyes would be opened. And I actually remember it was only 10 days, but it seems like it was much longer than that. I remember like, you know, I knew that Iran's economy had suffered significantly because of US sanctions, but I remember walking down the street near our hotel in Tehran and just seeing like massive, you know, big stores, consumer goods, refrigerators, big screen TVs and thinking this, this shocking thing about this is how normal it really seems. So i remember later on in the trip i remember sitting on a bus we were going to cyrus's tomb and i just remember thinking about how angry i was at the previous image i had of the country compared to what i myself was experiencing and all of the warm feelings towards americans maybe not the american government or specific american politicians per se but everyone wanted to take pictures with me we were not a group I was the only American on the group, the only one that was traveling on a U.S. passport. So when we would run into people, I I always volunteered. You know, I'm from America. Everyone else is from like Europe, other countries. I always volunteered this and everyone wanted to take pictures with me. The reactions were pretty universally positive, like shocked. They had never met some, they had never met an American, most of them. And so I remember um, kind of sitting on the bus to Cyrus's tomb and feeling just so angry that not just me but uh, americans in general had this perception of iran and i was experiencing something significantly different and also that you know i worked in dc and i was in the nonprofit world and i knew i had encountered a lot of people who were supposed to be experts on the region just was coming back and kind of listening to people talk on tv who were supposed to know about it i felt like i knew more about it just visiting for 10 days so that was a very eye opening experience for me. I came back and I realized how disillusioned I was with America specifically. And I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I decided at that moment that I was going to leave the United States.
0: Okay, well, before we get into what you did next, actually, I want to push my way and I'm going to interrupt you here, Alex, because I've been to Iran as well and I had a lot of the same feelings. You know, this is supposed to be the axis of evil. This is where the devil incarnate lives and and Satan and just the worst people on planet Earth and they're going to kidnap you and torture you and sell your organs and, you know, all these horrible, horrible things that you hear. And actually, when you go to Iran, it is filled with the nicest sweetest, most gentle people I have ever met in my life. Now, I lived in the Middle East for eight years, and I was kind of assuming ignorantly myself, that it would be very, very similar. These were Arab men and you know, maybe more similar to Egypt or something like that, which I've traveled through. Actually, it is nothing like that. It is very, very calm. You start walking through the Medina or the old town, the markets and a woman will go by and the men are like totally silent. They'll take a step back. There's no cat calling, there's no names. This isn't like Morocco or some of the other places that I've been that people would actually think of being quite aggressive in this regard. I went with a tour company called Keys to Persia. Do you remember what your tour company was called? You may be familiar with them. They're called Young Pioneer Tours. I think I've heard of them, but not one that I've ever used myself. It's the tour. It's
1: the company that Otto Warmbier took to North Korea. That's why most people know who they are. (laughs)
0: no idea. Don't know who that is. I actually don't follow like any other travelers or pretty much any other adventures unless they've been on my podcast. Then they're on my radar. Otherwise, I'm I actually had a conversation with someone the other day when I was in Colombia. And my friend was like, Oh, have you read this adventure book? Have you read that adventure book? I'm like, no, I read science fiction and fantasy. They're like, but adventure and travel and these things are your life. I'm like, yeah, it's my life. That's why I read fantasy or something else, because I deal with this every day, all day long. I want some escapism. I want something completely different. Anyways, I digress. Okay. Iran, amazing country. I absolutely love it. Now, what happened next?
1: So I came back. To Washington DC and I just realized how much I didn't know about the world how much you know compared to how much I thought I knew I think the reaction of my colleagues and friends to me traveling to Iran while I while I love them met most of all of them um most of them
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was like a Freudian slip there
1: it was such a like oh, I I don't really belong here. Like, I don't like this. I don't like this negative reaction. So I I just realized that I was in the wrong place. And I came to D.C. hoping to work to provide for a freer America and a smaller government. And that's not what was happening at the time at all uh, under the presidency of Donald Trump, whatever you think of him relative to, you know, alternatives. So I just realized that I wasn't where I wanted to be. I didn't know what I wanted to do. That's still a process I think that we're all figuring out. And I learned that that's okay. So fast forward 10 months later, I ended up going on a trip with my mom to Europe for a month. And we went to the UK, France and Italy. And then I left my job right before we did that. So then I came to Istanbul in January of last year on January 1st. So I was flying on a Turkish Airlines flight at 1130 on December 31st, and I watched the ball in New York drop on the TV screen on the back of the Turkish Airlines chair. And so I landed in Iran on New Year's Day, 2020, thinking that I wanted to teach English. So I did an English certification or a certification course to teach English as a second language. And then after that was over, in February, I went to Egypt for two weeks. And I started hearing about this thing called The coronavirus, I guess, is what we were calling it at the time. And I just kind of thought, you know, like, oh, I was hearing that most people who got it, they just had very mild symptoms, a cough and a fever, and that was fine. I wasn't really paying attention to it. I certainly didn't think that it was going to have the impact on the world that it did over the next two years. And I remember going to Egypt, going into the Valley of the Kings, and going underground and seeing all these Chinese tourists with wearing masks and thinking that it was so silly because at the time we were being advised that don't wear a mask that doesn't that doesn't have an impact on, on spread. So thinking that it was so strange and also that the coronavirus was coming from China, <laughs> and um, so I came back to Turkey. A friend from Iran visited me for a couple weeks, and then it started becoming more evident that. COVID was going to have more of an impact on travel than we all thought because Turkey, as soon as he got there, it seems, Turkey suspended all flights from Iran. Iran was one of the first hotspots for COVID. He had been planning on staying with me for maybe a month and he had to go back really fast on one of the last flights back to Iran. So from there, fast forward, a month. I had been planning on some travel before I really got serious about working. I had been planning some travel to Uzbekistan with another friend. They had just opened up, they had been notoriously difficult to get a tourist visa from, but they had just unveiled a new e-visa program. It was very easy to get a visa. So I got that visa. I was planning a trip to Uzbekistan for a couple weeks with a friend and then I was going to do Azerbaijan and then Georgia. And then it became obvious that I wasn't going to be able to do those things because flights were being canceled all over the world. So on March 10th or so, I realized, you know, I thought my 90 in 180 day visa for Turkey is going to be expiring soon. I should probably get out of here. So I flew to Tbilisi, Georgia on one of the last flights. And I remember the bus ride to Sabiha. It's not the main airport in Istanbul. It's the small airport, just like the most depressing thing ever with everyone wearing masks on the bus and like we were like I was flying to the most uncertain, you know, a couple, maybe a couple weeks, months. I didn't know at the time and getting on the plane. And I didn't realize that they had been calling for boarding. Like I was waiting for everyone to line up for boarding. There was no one on the plane, there were maybe like three to five people on the plane. So they had been calling my name and making announcements in Turkish. And then they finally, someone came up to me and I realized like, oh, this is my plane. It's about to leave. And looking down the aisle of the plane, and maybe there were three people on the whole flight.
0: It was the last flight to Tbilisi. Okay, so I'm listening to your stories here. And I'm a little bit surprised because, okay, yes, you had been to Canada and maybe some other countries you mentioned, Italy and the UK and things like that. But that's very different travel than Iran and Georgia and Istanbul and these types of places as what I would consider, and I hope you take no offense from this, at the time, a brand new traveler. Like, you really, at that point, hadn't had a lot of experience. So before we kind of jump into, you know, where did you go next and what was your experience like, I want to break down, like, what was going through your head? Why were you choosing these types of countries? Most people are like, okay, Paris, London, Germany, maybe Costa Rica, maybe Panama. Maybe they'll fly over to Thailand if they're really adventurous. But Iran as one of your first countries, Egypt, like Egypt's a full-on country. I mean, I've traveled through there and... I mean, you, it's pretty full on. Like it's, it's not a, for it's an experience. It's an experience. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's an experience. I'm not saying anything bad and I'm not insulting anyone. I had a great time there, but you need to know what you're doing for some of these types of countries. So walk me through kind of like what was in your mind when you were choosing these destinations? That's a good question. I didn't consider myself a new
1: traveler. Maybe by the time I came to Iran, I had been to 12 countries, maybe. Fairly cliche comment. I said, I said places like the UK and France, but I had been there multiple times. So I didn't really consider myself a new traveler. Uh, and I had been to Lebanon. Lebanon was the third country I ever had visited. And that's because somebody invited me. But yeah, I guess, in, the, in again, Americans don't tend to travel. So that's probably why I considered myself a more experienced traveler than I really was because leaving, having a passport period or leaving the country period is kind of like this scary thing to a lot of Americans. When I did the Iran tour, You have to imagine the average person who has a desire to go to Iran. They're kind of flying against all of not just in America, actually, but I think in the Western world in general, they have to face down all of their family. You know, all of the you're never coming back. You better draft your will or something. You're crazy, stuff like that. So everyone on the tour was very well traveled. And I was actually even though I had been to maybe a dozen countries by that point, in Western Europe, I had been to Mexico and I had traveled in the Middle East a little bit. I was encountering people who had been to places like Turkmenistan, and I mentioned Uzbekistan planning for an Uzbekistan trip. So it also, that really opened my eyes to the world that was out there and what I really didn't know about the world. I will add this too. So right before I left my job, I had some in my job in DC, I had some vacation time left so i actually coordinated a tour to iraq in october now there was some instability in iraq around that time there were protests there they turned violent you know they i think the country implemented kind of a form of martial law they turned off the internet i didn't even know that was possible but i was talking to my iraqi friend and there were several days where he couldn't talk to me at all so that all happened right before i was supposed to go to iraq and then the tour company offered Saudi Arabia opened up to tourist visas. They it's it, it had been obviously people have traveled to Saudi Arabia as religious pilgrims going on the Hajj, but they I think maybe two weeks before this what was supposed to be the tour to Iraq, Saudi Arabia opened up for tourism. So they kind of said, hey the. Tourist cancel to Iraq, you can have your money back, but if you'd like, we'll take you on this Saudi Arabia itinerary, and you'll be one of the first
0: tourists, you know, official tourists to go to Saudi Arabia. Amazing. So, okay, so just to get my timeline right, and then I have some some questions on this one. This was before you were heading to Georgia. This was in between the... Okay, so in between Iran and the Georgia, you went to Saudi. Man, you are impressive because you've gone to some of the countries that are like high up on my bucket list. Like, okay, I've been to Iran. I've traveled a lot through there. But Saudi is definitely high up for there. Now, I had some people comment on the forum like one or two weeks ago asking about Saudi, and I had made a comment that it was on the top of my list. And people were like, why would you want to go to Saudi Arabia? Why would you want to go to Saudi Arabia? For me, it's super interesting because most people on planet Earth have never been there. You have really no idea what happens behind their borders. I mean, okay, you're going to see some stuff on the news, but the news lies, I mean, all over the place as we kind of covered with Iran. But I want to see, you know, what is it really like there? Is it as terrible as people say? Is it beautiful? I've seen pictures. I've seen some pretty stunning looking architecture and I like life in the Middle East. That's why I lived there for so many years. But I like to go to all of those types of countries that nobody else goes to. And kind of in our conversation today, Alex, I'm feeling like maybe you feel the same.
1: Yeah, I do feel the same. So I knew that Saudi Arabia was somewhere that I wanted to go because I only a few months prior, I had been on the Iran tour. So I had an image in my mind about Saudi Arabia, and I wanted to see, especially because I had this vacation time, I actually had the flights all booked to Istanbul to eventually go on to Iraq, we were supposed to meet in Istanbul on this tour. And then we were all going to fly into Baghdad together. So I had a flight to Istanbul, I don't think I could get a refund for it, or maybe maybe I could get a credit. But I figured, well, I have to go somewhere that Istanbul is connecting to anyway, I may as well just go on this Saudi Arabia tour, because it'll also be the Pretty cool to be one of the first tourists so we went to riyadh we met in dubai actually we went to riyadh together and because the transition had been so fast it was kind of like i saw on social media that they were now offering visa on arrival to americans and tourism had been banned like there was no tour no official tourism in saudi arabia so they went from that to visa on arrival for americans And my family had been kind of texting me, you know, oh, that's probably where where you'll you'll go next. And it turns out, unexpectedly, I didn't know that that is where I ended up next. Riyadh is an incredible city. There are a lot of changes happening in Saudi Arabia right now. I think right before I got there, they had removed the prohibition on women driving. So I didn't see very many women driving. And maybe that's part of just cultural norms that last beyond what the law says but it was an exciting time to visit because they were talking about saudi 2030 i think it's called opening up the economy a little bit diversifying away from oil stuff like that so exciting time to visit we went to we went from riyadh to my favorite place that i visited in saudi arabia was jeddah they have an amazing old city It needs some restoration work. And I think that they're talking about it, but the old coral homes with the wooden porches, I don't know if you've been, I think Cairo has some of these old style homes. That was really incredible. And just that whole area being so close to Mecca, I think it's known as the gateway to Mecca. A lot of people over the centuries have stayed in Jeddah on their way to Umrah or
0: Hajj in Mecca. Amazing. Yeah, it was one of those places that I wanted to go to so much when I lived in the Middle East. But at that time, there were no tourist visas. So you would have to be a Muslim and you would have to get an invitation letter. You'd have to be going on Hajj, uh, the pilgrimage. It's one of the five pillars of Islam. And that was not applicable to me and my family. So I never had an opportunity to go. And then I think it was probably like, I don't know, a couple of months after I had moved to Panama that I saw news that it had come up with a tourist visa and I was so upset. And I talked to my wife and I showed her and she's like, oh my God, that's not fair. You know, we lived there for so long and we never got to go. So we're still planning that, that's on the top of our list. I hope that things are open still with COVID. I'm not sure exactly the situation there, but it's gonna be really interesting. I think I'm gonna to have to put this back on the top of my list. My, my big ones right now are Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. Those are the two places I wanna see more than anything else.
1: Yeah. Pakistan is another place that was very difficult previously for Americans to travel to, at least. I'm not sure about Canadian passport holders, but I've had a couple of friends who did the e-visa and easily traveled there. So I'm looking forward to it maybe
0: by next year. Maybe we'll get a, a whole big group of expat money That'd be cool. uh, community or something like that. will go to Pakistan. If you guys are interested, join us on the forum. Maybe we'll start a thread on there and see if anyone's looking forward to that too. Okay. So let's go back to Georgia because I totally interrupted you there. So you arrived into Georgia. It was the beginning of the pandemic. What was life like when you got into the country?
1: So I had been in Istanbul and it seemed like life was fairly normal there until maybe the last two days. And then I, it's, you know, I'm forgetting the exact time frame, but it seemed like, I remember when Trump signed an executive order to halt all flights from Europe for like 30 days or something like that. That's when I really realized there's no there's not gonna be any flights to Europe for 30 days. That's a really extreme move. So that's when I kind of started to realize, oh, you know, this new path that I've set out on, I'm jumping into really uncertain waters right here. I mean, I already knew that I was jumping into uncertain waters, but this is like really bad timing for me. So, I think it was around March 10th, a couple of days before the lockdown started. I flew to Georgia and we found out that outdoor transmission is relatively non existent, I think. But we didn't know that at the time. So, the streets were pretty deserted. And I stayed in a hotel for a couple nights and there was a russian family that was staying there but the rest of the hotel was empty georgians are very hospitable i later found out but the hotel owners actually cooked for all of us one night because we were the only ones in the hotel so i was asking them like are the streets normally like this is it because it's a sunday i know georgians are very conservative and religious or are people just afraid because of covid and they said no people are starting to get really afraid because of the virus so then Within two or three days of me landing there, they announced that all restaurants were going to be takeaway only, and eventually they went into lockdown. It was hard to envision what exactly that would look like at the time. Restaurants just serving takeaway, how are they gonna stay in business? How long is this going to go on for? I went out and I bought like, they weren't panic buying in Georgia the the way They were in the United States fighting over toilet paper and stuff like that in the grocery store. But I did go out and buy like dried lentils, you know, packs of dried beans and stuff, not knowing if something like that was going to happen there. And I was all alone. I didn't know anyone in the country at all. So I ate out, I went to restaurants. I really made the most of the first few days of semi-normalcy. And then we were in lockdown from March through April, through May, through June.
0: And you were there the entire time? I was there the
1: entire time.
0: (laughs) By yourself? (laughs) By myself. Oh, man. And,
1: you know, I knew that I didn't have so much to fear from COVID myself, but I was all by myself. And I didn't really want to end up in the hospital by myself if I was hospitalized. So I was pretty cautious. It's funny to look back on it because, At the time, Georgia actually was praised by the international media because they sealed their borders to Iran and China really soon in the pandemic. So case counts for whatever they were worth at the time were very low through pretty much the whole time that I was there. And I look back on kind of how cautious I was at the time and just think like I didn't I could have made so many more friends there. And the risk was so low for me. I wish I had been a little bit more social while I was there.
0: Looking back, like hindsight is 2020. I mean, no one knew at the very beginning. I mean, we heard about COVID in early, early January, started loading up from Costco, like tons of food and everything like that. We already had quite a bit because I'm kind of a mild prepper myself, but we loaded up on even more stuff. And then in February, I was like early February, I was taking flights. I was the first person to have a mask on because we had no idea what was going on. And then March happened and everything locked down around the world. We'd already been preparing for two months so we already knew what was going on. But I had been saying from the very, very beginning that the worst thing that is gonna happen is to the economy here. That, you know, that's the real virus here that we all need to be watching out for. But in my situation, I was with my family. I have a huge apartment and, you know, yeah, we got locked down, but I was with my family, my kids, and we had all of these types of things. I can't imagine being locked down in a hotel by yourself. That must have been difficult psychologically to kind of stay positive and, you know, you're in a country, you don't speak the language, you don't know anybody and in a hotel by yourself. So how did you kind of like deal with those things and stay, you know, positive and upbeat and and work through all of that?
1: That's a great question especially because I had quit my job sold most of my possessions or shipped them to my family in Oregon and really didn't know exactly how I was you know I had this idea that I was going to teach English at the time but didn't that didn't end up being for me so a lot of uncertainty as it was already and then this once in a century global pandemic hits And just kind of like watching the CNN headlines, (laughs) I remember at the time seeing, like, this is so vivid in my memory, seeing at the bottom of the screen, something like Secretary of State Pompeo urges all Americans to return home or prepare to be left abroad indefinitely. So I would, you know, what does indefinitely mean? What does
0: that even mean? Yeah.
1: I mean, like you said... Hindsight is twenty twenty, and I, because I had been so excited to start this new life, I just couldn't. Like looking back, I kind of, I didn't really have a reason to go home. Like I didn't have a stable job, so by not a choice, I in effect ended up staying.
0: Okay, let's take a quick break. Recently, I started working with a new company in the insurance field. This is health insurance for expats and digital nomads. I really like the way that this company works. And you know what? Me and my family are using it. Now, I started working with people on insurance probably about a year or so ago. and I was absolutely shocked when I heard what they were paying for insurance back in the United States. Now, when you move overseas, you're going to still need to have insurance. You're not going to want to use the local, state-run medical system here, you're going to want to go private. Now, don't get scared. It's not gonna cost you what it would in the States. You probably expect you can pay, I would say maybe a third or a quarter. And same thing if you're a digital nomad. If you're traveling, if you're going from country to country, you certainly need health insurance. There is no question about this. Don't think that you're saving yourself money. That is a bonehead move. Make sure you get insurance. Even if you have insurance, see what they're covering, see what they're not covering. I get inpatient, outpatient, full medical, full dental. I think it's a half a million dollars deductible, drug plan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like a full, complete platinum plan. And our family is paying a quarter, a quarter of what you would be paying in the United States. So I'm really excited to be working with these guys. If you want to find out more information, all you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash insurance.
1: I vividly remember reading and I don't remember where it was at the time, but it was a credible enough source, so it might have been like The Economist or something. The Economist magazine. I remember reading this forecast: that U.S. GDP, and by GDP I don't mean per capita GNP, gross national product, could drop to levels not seen since 1992, and that was the year I was born. So just thinking about, oh, I'm nearing my 30s, the prime of my life, and I'm going to have to worry about the GDP dropping down to where it was in 1992. That's terrifying. And I remember waking up the next morning, just with chest pains, like a truck had hit me or something. So, and remember, this was, I was all by myself. I didn't know. I mean, I was talking to people online and electronically, but I didn't know anyone in the country. And I was kind of too scared to make friends. Also, there was nowhere to go that was open to make friends. So as far as what I did to stay upbeat,
0: I don't know. I just, I planned what I was going to do. Well, I I mean, I don't know. Did I put words in your mouth? Were you upbeat? Were you positive through all of this? Or, you know, if you were scared and, and upset about that, that's totally understandable. I don't want to tell you how you felt by any means.
1: It just seemed, it seems like a blur you know, it was like four months of not really being able to do anything. And I'm a big walker. I like to walk. I can walk 10 miles a day easily anywhere that I travel to, any new place. But I don't like to stop places along the way and go go to eat, go to drink. And everything was closed. So it was just like, why would I want to walk here? Nothing's open. It's very gloomy. There was actually a period where driving in Tbilisi was banned. I just remember how you know, I'll never experience this again, probably, I hope, but I remember how quiet a city sounded when there were no cars on the road and how depressing that was. I don't know. I did stay relatively, I knew that there was going to be light on the other side of the tunnel. So I wouldn't even classify this one of the most difficult periods of my life, but it was certainly a really unique challenge and we didn't know how it was going to end and maybe we still don't know how it's going to end although things are much more normal most places then.
0: pitchforks that's how it's going to end that's what's going to happen torches and pitchforks absolutely people need to ah, i'm not going to comment further on that but yeah. yes i think people know what i'm talking about okay so anyway so you were there for four months now what made you end up leaving and getting back on the road and start traveling again well, I was actually there for six months,
1: but I hadn't seen any of the country until month, until July. So I was there until September. So in kind of in my memory, it seemed like the travel aspect of Georgia was so much longer than just those two or so months. And I've kind of, I don't remember the lockdown very well, probably because I wasn't doing that much. But I ended up traveling to every province of Georgia There were no flights, really flights out of Georgia were very sporadic and they were very expensive. So I figured I'll just wait until things kind of become more normal. This is it was actually a great place to be kind of cooped up because it was a very it's a very affordable country. It is a country where people highly value their individual freedom. There's a lot of exciting things happening in Georgia, just from a digital nomad, freelancer, entrepreneurial perspective. So it was a good place to be. The food was amazing. Each kind of region of Georgia has something different to offer. And I wasn't in a huge hurry to leave. Also, as I said, COVID was very, at least by case counts, very subdued there. So I felt safer than I did elsewhere. Eventually I knew that I was going to have to leave Georgia. And as I said, there weren't too many regular flights. So Turkey reopened their borders to most nationalities, only their land borders. So I ended up going across, I ended up entering Turkey through the land border. And I was in Eastern Turkey, taking buses all around for, let's see. No, September, October, November, before I came back to Istanbul. So I
0: saw a lot of Eastern
1: Turkey in those three months.
0: Amazing. Okay, and when you were in Turkey, and specifically in Eastern Turkey, what was it like on the ground there? Were people all masked up? Were there lockdowns, quarantines, curfews? How did the Turkish people kind of handle things from the COVID side? So I should say, as I was leaving Georgia,
1: that's when COVID really spiked in Georgia, coincidentally. I came to Turkey... And everyone had been, in Georgia, everyone had basically been adhering to the, you know, two meters, social distancing, let's flatten the curve, everyone needs to wear a mask. But, like, looking back on it, and now, now, as I was leaving, they were kind of like not being so cautious about it anymore there. You know, people weren't wearing the mask correct correctly. They were gathering a little bit more, they were out in the streets a little bit more. Good. But I came to them. Turkey, which is a much, right, good for them. <laughs> they realized it was all BS. Yeah. I came to Turkey, which is a much more urban population and you had to, I'm not making an excuse for them creating this rule, I guess, but you had to wear a mask in the street you know, walking outside down the street. Granted, it's fairly crowded in Turkey and in the cities, but that took some getting used to. And it was very hot there, so it was very uncomfortable to wear a mask all the time. But it was much more of uh, basically a police state. The military was out, they were telling people, you know, pull your mask up, put your mask on, stay away, don't stand too close to this person. So it was much more strict, and people were more, I guess, fearful of the virus there.
0: That's sad to hear because I always had thought that Turkey had handled things quite well. Now, I've been to Turkey multiple times, but not during the pandemic. I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, they kind of reversed course on these pretty early and Turkey actually did become one of the more open countries on planet Earth.
1: I heard different things. So I think they, I think they went back and forth. It seemed like when I was in Georgia, I remember hearing that the lockdowns in Turkey weren't that restrictive. So I think, you know, they went, they kind of went back and forth on that.
0: Mm -hmm. Flip-flopping all over the place.
1: But it it took, I mean, it took some getting used to, to be told by the police, you need to wear a mask walking down the street, even if there's no one around you. Yeah, that's...
0: Very bizarre. Also, one other point that I wanted to mention is going back to where the governments were saying, oh, we, we strongly suggest you come home or you know, fly back to Canada, fly back to the States, fly back to these countries. For me, it's like, why? Like, I mean, if this is gonna be everywhere in the world anyways, then why would I wanna fly back to Toronto or for you to fly back to the West Coast or something, like or back to DC? I'm like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Okay, it's supposed to be the airports are so dangerous and airplanes are so dangerous. So why do you want to get on an airplane then if it's so terrible and bad? And it's like, okay, these small countries and they have lockdowns as well. So why did the governments care at all about bringing people home? I don't know. It's just a weird little side note, but doesn't still doesn't make sense in my head today.
1: I hadn't really thought about that. Well, I'm sure I have thought about it at some point. But yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know. I kind of thought at the time that I, we didn't really know how deadly it was. And this is a little morbid to reflect on. I thought, potentially, I'm going to have to prepare for deaths in my family. So I don't want to be stranded if that happens. Eventually, I did have a close family member pass away, but it wasn't because of COVID.
0: I still don't know anybody who has died from COVID. Just, I I guess I'm very lucky. Um, I don't think I I do either. Yeah, I haven't had anybody in my life. I haven't met anyone. There's no friends, no friends' parents or grandparents, or I don't know anyone. So I guess I'm very fortunate in this regard. I I don't wish harm on anybody and, and loss of life is very terrible. And anyone who's listening to today and and hears my kind of disdain for COVID, what I'm specifically referring to is government's overreach and trampling all over people's freedoms and rights. I'm not downplaying any deaths or anything like that but government's handling of things i think is criminal and they have no right to do any of this stuff it's not part of their role it's not part of their roles and responsibilities so just to clear that up completely so okay so you were in turkey for a couple of months then what happened next where did you go next or what happened next or how did things unfold
1: well so i had a blast in eastern turkey it's very much off the beaten track I would say, you know, everyone thinks of Turkey as being, it's a NATO member. Lots of people visit Turkey from the West, but Eastern Turkey is just a whole other world. No one speaks English out there. And I actually remember, so I'll get into this later. I actually remember coming home for Christmas in 2020 and not really being used to having somebody speaking English to me at the grocery store because I had been in Eastern Turkey for a couple months. I'm gonna tell this story. I was on a ferry in, in Van, Turkey. I was on a ferry. Lake Van is a giant freshwater lake in the east of Turkey. I was on a ferry out to the island and I used the toilet on the ferry. And I had mentioned that there was an outdoor mask mandate. So I was wearing a mask and I don't know if anyone else has experienced this, but you really realize how the mask blocks a lot of your vision like your peripheral vision downward do i want to hear the rest of the story <laughs> so i came out of the toilet and there was a trapdoor storage area okay on the boat that someone had opened like the captain's kid and this is all kind of a blur to me because i fell you know i don't know how many how many feet because i didn't see it and also it was right in front of the, the door to the toilet oh, no. and i looked down and it was so fast and you when you have an injury like this you think like oh i'm just gonna get up you know it's embarrassing everyone saw what happened i'm just gonna get up and walk it off everything's gonna be fine yeah. i looked down and there was a cut on my leg all the way down to the bone Ooh. with blood everywhere well, that's brutal. so remember that no one speaks english <laughs> there were two iranians coincidentally a married couple about my age mid-20s who ended up taking me to the hospital, because I guess the nearest the, there were no ambulances available or the next ambulance was going to come in an hour or something like that. And I had to do all of this through Google Translate, while this massive gash was on my leg. So they ended up taking me to the hospital. And I actually befriended an EMT in the hospital, who took me every other day from my hotel to get my stitches changed. <laughs> And kind of took care of me. It's kind of, you know, embarrassing, but we're lifelong friends because of... And he doesn't speak English, so we only talk through Google Translate and WhatsApp. That's brutal.
0: I'm glad you're okay. Yeah, masks are dangerous. See, masks are dangerous. Yeah, I blame the mask for that. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Now, did you have insurance? Was all of that covered? Were you worried about getting these crazy medical bills overseas? this is very irresponsible but i had let my insurance lapse
1: so the whole thing ended up costing about a hundred dollars i went to both government-run clinics and private clinics you know i don't have any commentary really to provide on that other than the government-run clinics seemed western standard basically i'm not in favor of socialized medicine but
0: well, I would suggest anyone listening, please, if you're going to travel, travel with health insurance, yes. get worldwide coverage. If you guys go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash insurance, you can check out the guys that I work with. They're excellent. And please, please, please do not follow Alex's example in this one. In this instance, it was only a hundred dollar bill, but I have heard of people, and I've had people on the show. I had one guy on, his show, on the show named John who fell and broke, I think it was both of his shoulders, and they had to fly him back to the States to have surgery. And it was like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they had a nurse who had to travel with him and everything like that. And it was completely covered by insurance, thank goodness. Otherwise, it would have just absolutely ruined him. So please, insurance, expatmoneyshow.com forward slash insurance. Okay, well, I'm glad that you made a good friend out of it. And you have a war wound now to show off to everybody. Yeah, that would have been an interesting experience to go through in a country where you don't speak the language and you have to use Google Translate for everything.
1: So I was in the hotel room for two weeks or so. And that was kind of the lockdown all over again, but it was only two weeks. And then I resumed traveling. So it Really, I, I was physically capable of walking, shockingly. And it really didn't put that much of a dent in my plans. And it's kind of a funny story. It looks, if you look at my leg, it looks like it happened yesterday. And this was a year ago. So i ha- like, I'm going to have that forever. I ended up going home for Thanksgiving. And, you know, that was against the advice of all of the Dr. Fauci's of the world. Traveling for Thanksgiving was like the ultimate sin. I'm glad that I did go back at the time because it had been a very stressful year to say the least for everyone, me, my family. I'm glad that I got to see them. And then I actually had someone close to me pass away shortly after going back. So I came back to Istanbul in January of this year and I had planned on applying for what is called the tourist residency visa. So it's essentially a tourist visa, but it's kind of considered a residency. You have to have an apartment lease and you have to buy into their state insurance program, stuff like that. But I just thought, oh, I really haven't traveled as much as I wanted to because of this pandemic. So why did I come back to Istanbul? And I looked up the countries at that time. I think that there were something like 20 countries that were open to Americans. So we had gone from holding one of the world's most powerful passports, as far as travel is concerned, to a passport on the level of like Iran or somewhere like that, Syria, Syria, or uh, sorry, Serbia was open for Americans. So I didn't really know anything about Serbia, except for all of the negative connotations around the Balkans because of the conflicts in the 90s. Got on a plane to Serbia and traveled all around Serbia. I ended up going to North Macedonia, Kosovo, Albania, Montenegro,
0: Croatia, and Bosnia in the Balkans. Okay, amazing. So why don't you kind of break down in those countries, maybe pick one which was the most locked down and then pick another one which was the most free. I'm kind of curious your experience uh, from both sides or both extremes on this.
1: The Balkans was fairly open. The borders were open between the countries that I just listed for most of that time. I'm talking about a period from January to June of this year. So when I went to Serbia, I believe there was a mask mandate there. When I went to Kosovo, everything was pretty much open. And that was the first time that I had kind of experienced like going into a grocery store and nobody cared. No one was wearing a mask. The employees were talking to each other. They weren't standing back. It kind of freaked me out at the time, but it was really refreshing to see. By the time I got to North Macedonia, they were in lockdown. So I had been excited to go there because there was a restaurant in my hometown based on Macedonian cuisine that my grandmother and I would go to all the time. But I only was able to order takeaway from the restaurants there. Albania was the most normal country I visited. It was as if covid had not happened. It wasn't just that there was no mask mandate. It's that no one was wearing a mask at all. Bars were open. There was no curfew. It was very free and normal. Now I've heard that some of that has changed, but when I was there, it was very normal and really amazing to see like, this is what normal life used to be like.
0: Off the top of your head, do you remember what their COVID numbers were just out of curiosity? I don't remember, I think I
1: remember asking people because at at that point I was starting to become less fearful of it. So I was becoming a little bit more social when I just, I thought, usually when you go somewhere and there's no mask mandate, you still see people wearing masks. And I I remember asking them like, why isn't there a, a rule around masks here, at least in indoor spaces? And they said, oh, the numbers are just so low or they've declined so much. And something that I should add about These are not post-Soviet states that I'm talking about, but many people who grew up or had their parents or grandparents grow up in authoritarian regimes, they are used to the government lying to them, misleading them, trying to manipulate them and control them. So skepticism around some of these
0: measures is very high. Yeah, that makes sense. and. I'm sure they probably don't want a repeat of what they went through last time. So my understanding... Okay, I never have lived in a communist country. I didn't grow up in a communist country, although arguably Canada has turned into it now. My understanding is that people... Yes, there were rules. Yes, there were laws on how things were done. But no one really follows them anyways. And there was always some type of a black market. There was always, you know, tips and tricks and ways to kind of maneuver through these types of things. That's what I have been told. So, you know, if you guys did grow up in a situation like this, tell me, am I right? Am I wrong? You know, did you guys follow everything that the government says? I believe you didn't. And and I congratulate you from that. So
1: Later on, I ended up traveling to Ukraine and i visited the chernobyl exclusion zone and that was an incredible experience because we got to see what it's kind of an open-air museum to the last days of the soviet union and the tour was extremely informative i actually stayed overnight in an old soviet hotel in the exclusion zone that they had sort of renovated and something that stuck with me was how Gorbachev didn't make a speech for 21 days or so after the accident had occurred. The people in the town neighboring the Chernobyl accident were told that they were going away for three days only and that they should pack for kind of a weekend trip and that everything was okay. You know, we have everything all under control and they were never allowed to return officially. Some of them did return illegally. And... They talked about on the tour how people's faith, if they did have any faith remaining in the Soviet system, really dissipated, finding out that they had been lied to, and on such a scale as the Chernobyl accident.
0: Yeah, that's wild to think about. Absolutely wild. Okay, Alex, we're getting close to our time here. So I guess what I want to understand is, and and what I want your opinion about is, should people be traveling during COVID? I mean, I have tons of digital nomads or people who want to be digital nomads or expats. Should people go out there and be trying to travel now with all of this extra hassle? Or should we just be trying to wait it out? And then when we're on the other side, then start our lives again? What are
1: we waiting for? COVID isn't going away. COVID will always be around COVID isn't going to be eradicated. I think that the goalposts will be ever changing as far as travel restrictions related to COVID. Unfortunately, I don't anticipate a time when we won't be wearing masks on planes, for instance. But I mean, if you're healthy, go for it. What are you waiting for? It's still possible to travel internationally. It's more difficult certain places than others. But I just saw, I've been seeing headlines that much of Southeast Asia is opening up. And as most people in Australia too, as most know, they had adopted a so-called zero COVID approach. And I think they're kind of realizing that that's just not feasible forever.
0: So they're opening up. Exactly. So you heard it here. Go travel. There are options. There are countries that are open. You know, this has been going on for two years now, just under two years. It's like, what are you waiting for, as Alex said? Brilliant. I love it. Thank you so much for the conversation today, Alex. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your experiences of being out on the road during COVID and traveling through the East during this time. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to follow you and learn more about what you do, where can we send them?
1: They can go to empoweryoumarketing.com. I just launched the website recently and I'm starting my own boutique digital marketing
0: agency. Beautiful. And we will make sure that we have the links to that in the show notes at expatmoneyshow.com. Alex, thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon, my friend. Thanks, Mikau. Thanks for having me on. Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed today's interview. I sure had a ton of fun recording it. Before you guys go, I want you to check out a newsletter that I'm just absolutely obsessed with right now. So my buddy, Marco Wutzer was on the podcast for episode 137. And we talked about anything and everything to do with crypto. Now, I know quite a bit about crypto. I've been in the space for roughly five years now, and I've made a lot of money, and I've lost a lot of money. And I really used to do these things on my own. I used to do my own analysis, my own research, et cetera, et cetera. But to tell you the truth, I don't have time for that, and I would have to spend all day long doing it. But when I met Marco, I really started diving into his work, and he runs a paid newsletter called Project Serenity. You guys can find out more about it at expatmoneyshow.com forward slash crypto. The newsletter is excellent. He discusses different projects. He has buy alerts, sell alerts. He shows you what they entered into a position at, what it should be sold at. And the response has been amazing, and his track record has been phenomenal. So I want you guys to check it out. If you have experience in crypto, if you are trading, if you maybe are not trading yet, but you really want to trade, then these are the projects that you might want to get involved in. Okay, It's, it's not a how-to course by any means. It's an investment newsletter. It's con- done completely digital. But the product is fantastic, and everyone who signed up has had fantastic result with it. So all you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash crypto, and we will see you next Wednesday on the podcast. Enjoy your day. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels.